I'm so excited. I just love coming here on a Sunday morning. It's like, who gets to walk into a room of some of their favorite people every week? It just is a delight. So I'm so glad you're here. Um, please feel welcome. Um, I am trying to go very quickly because I want us to have some extended back-end time. So my plan is to say it quickly so that I can say more in a shorter amount of time. Um, we're going through the book of Nehemiah, for those of you who've been with us. And, and just the recap so far, the people have returned in a wave for, um, to Jerusalem. They have set their minds and hearts to rebuild the wall. Um, they have come to live in the city. They've sat under the word of God. They have repented in response to that. They have celebrated. They have promised that they're never going to be faithless again. Um, and now here we are at the dedication of the wall. So that's where we are. And we're going to read from Nehemiah 12 today, um, from 27 to 43. It's a little bit lengthy, and there's a whole lot of names in there. But if I say them confidently, you won't even know if I'm mispronouncing them, right? So here we go. Um, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nephtathites, and from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I, Nehemiah, brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall. Remember, this is the wall that a fox could have knocked over, and now the leaders are up on the wall. It's a significant moment. And I appointed two great choirs to give thanks. I don't know how many are in a great choir, but there's a lot of people up on this wall. And one went to the south, past the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, and Ezra, and Meshulam, and Judah, and Benjamin, and Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melai, Gilai, Mai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanai, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, these guys went south, and they went straight up before them, up the stairs to the city of David, to the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed with them, with half of the people, on the wall above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, to the gate of Yeshanah, to the gate of the fish gate, to the tower of Hanalel, to the Tower of the Hundred, to the Sheep Gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And Minamim, Micai, Elaniah, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets. And Messiah, Shemai, Eliezer, Uzai, Jehoanan, Malkiah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezriah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So I want to look at this in three sections this morning. Um, obviously, the sections are not um, neat and segmented. They will overlap, and it's kind of a little bit like herding cats, trying to make this stay in this section, because it all, it all interlinks. But stick with me. <laughs> 
Um, and most of Nehemiah, and in fact, most of the Bible, is a call for us to remember. We need to remember, we need to recall, we need to rehearse the faithfulness of God. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to remember who our God is and what he has done for us. So in verse 30, right at the beginning of the passage that we started, we see the purification. So I have three points. Um, and because this is how my brain works, this is how you get it. So it's purification, procession, and praise. Uh, you're lucky it's not color-coded this morning. That's the other way my brain works. So you just get the peas. So purification is the first part. And here we see the priests purifying the people. It's a picture of a people who are unclean, who are sullied and stained, and they need to be washed before they can come into the presence of God. I'm going to stop and think, has, you know, has it always been this way? Have we always been unclean? Have we always been unworthy to be in the presence of God? Well, let's go back to the beginning of the story. And in Genesis, we see that God created man to be in intimate union and relationship with him. Created man to be in companionship and to walk together with him in his presence. But sin entered and it changed everything. The essence of who we were created to be in relationship with God was forever altered. And we were left lost and hopeless. In Genesis 3, we hear the story of after they have disobeyed. It says, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And previously, it says they were naked and unashamed. Now they know that they're naked, and they're ashamed. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord their God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Is that not tragic? But the Lord called to man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you of the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We just see the effects of sin. They are immediate and they are disastrous. They are ashamed and they cover themselves up. They are afraid and they hide. Now, I personally think hiding is a perfectly reasonable response for, to fear. I don't know why it's not one of the options. You know, they say flight or fight. Where's hiding in that? I think it should be, you know, what's it? Flight and hide. That's what your options should be. <laughs> That's, that makes sense. <laughs> Nick cannot understand. He cannot understand it. And I remember in South Africa, and unfortunately, you know, the fact that somebody could break into your home is a reality. And I was home alone. And I had the dog in the room with me, because that made me very brave. And um, it was the middle of the night, and he was a very well-trained dog. And suddenly he gets up, and he starts circling. I was not married. I was home alone. And the dog starts circling. And then I hear a, a door in the hallway go, and the dog just does this low growl. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's happening. There's someone in the house. So in this moment of fear, like, I'm going to hide. I thought it was genius. I got up in the middle of the night, I made my bed, and I crawled underneath it. I thought, they're going to come in here, and they're going to think nobody's still in this room. I thought I was brilliant, because hiding is a perfectly reasonable response to fear. Thank you, Jacqueline. Thank you. As it turned out, it was just a, a huge thunderstorm that was brewing, and that was what was causing the dark. So I had for nothing. Um, but the problem with hiding is that it does become a natural response, but we hide from the, for the wrong reasons, 
and we hide in the wrong places. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But we see that they're afraid. They're basically afraid of God. They have believed a lie about God and they have a distorted view and image of who he is. And some of that is residue in our hearts still today. Some of us are still afraid. We're afraid that God is dot, 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 or that God will dot, 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 or God will not dot, dot, dot. Whatever it is for you, there's some of that residue that still sullies us and we hide from the wrong things in the wrong places. We also are ashamed. We're ashamed of who we are. We believed a lie about who we are and we end up covering up things that really shouldn't be covered up. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little story. I hope it's a hopeful illustration, helpful illustration and not just like group therapy for me, but you know, here we go. <laughs> Monday was my birthday and I spent six hours of it in a dentist chair having teeth pulled. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to adulting. We know. Um, but what had happened, apparently I'm clenching my teeth and I've cracked and fractured a bunch of them, whatever. And one just gave up and fell out my mouth. So we're like, okay. So we, had, we knew we had to pull that one. And then the, I don't know what they were going to do. They were going to take the next one's crown off and uh, something. So when <laughs> she got to t something very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when she got to underneath the crown, she took it off, and what had happened is that the tooth under there had completely disintegrated. But nobody knew because it was covered up. Nobody knew. And when we cover things up, it's not like we're covering up a bad drawing or something that's inanimate. We're actually covering up something that is actively decaying. And it doesn't go away because we've covered it up. So covering up is not a good option for our sinfulness. Um, J.I. Packer, whose book on the pursuit of holiness I've borrowed heavily from for this, he says it wonderfully. He says, not only does sin make us ashamed and afraid, but it awakens an anti-God syndrome deep within us. Isn't that brilliant? There's this anti-God syndrome in us. And we steal our hearts against God and we exalt ourselves. And usually ex it expresses itself in pride, ingratitude, and self-gratification. So all of this is the result of sin. And God is holy and perfect and sinless. And now we are sullied and stained by sin. And God in his holiness cannot abide by sin. So now we seem to be at an impasse, right? Things are fractured. Seems a little bit hopeless. But God, before the foundation of the world had a plan for us, before he created us, he knew what it was going to cost him and chose to do it anyway. And this is where we see the picture of the priests washing the people to come into the presence of God. And this picture of the priests washing the people, cleansing them, purifying them, is a shadow of Jesus, our great high priest. We get a glimpse of Jesus by what these priests are doing. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Hebrews just unpacks it so beautifully for us. He's holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's sinless. He doesn't, like these priests, have to offer a sacrifice for himself before he can offer a sacrifice for us. He doesn't have to offer these sacrifices daily because he offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus our great high priest. Not only is our great high not only is our, sorry, I told you I was going to say a lot of words quickly. <laughs> not only is our, he our great high priest, he also becomes the sacrifice himself. He's the priest and he's a sacrifice. 
And let me tell you that this sacrifice was personal. One of my favorite scriptures is 2 Corinthians where it says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't delegate the, the sacrifice or the dealing with this. He didn't handle it with gloves and tongs from a distance or afar. He became sin himself. He bore it in his own body. So the sacrifice is personal. The sacrifice is also full and perfect and sufficient. It is enough. There is nothing that stands excluded from the sacrifice. In 1 John it says, The blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. All sin, all people, all time. It's sufficient. The sacrifice was also costly. In Romans 8 it says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us. That's what it cost God. It cost him the life of his own son. He did not spare him, but gave. And we know that the great measure of love is giving. You remember this story about the tooth that I was telling you, this kind of group therapy that we were going through? I sat with this wonderfully kind, gentle dentist, and she's like, okay, so this is how much it's going to cost. And I'm like, well, how much can I sell a kidney for? That sounds about right, if I, you know. And she's like, okay, we've got to, let's see what we can figure out. What can you afford? Remember, we've got other work to do. Let's find the best middle of the road kind of solution. Well, let me tell you that for our sin, we don't have to find a middle of the road solution. Jesus paid it in full, completely, and utterly. And ours is not a partial, temporary, or middle of the road solution. Jesus takes that that desire that, we, that sin evoked in us to hide and to cover, and he just makes it beautiful. He hides us in himself. He covers us with himself. I've used this illustration before, but I cannot find one that, that is more illustrative. <laughs> um, in New Zealand, where they have lots of sheep, they do this thing where if a lamb has died... And there's an orphaned lamb. So this little lamb over here died, and this little lamb over here is an orphan. They skin this lamb, and they cover the orphan in the skin of this lamb, and they present it to the ewe, and the ewe smells it, and she's like, that's my own, that's mine. I recognize that, and she takes that in. And that's exactly what happened with us. Jesus hides us in himself. He covers us with himself, and we stand before the presence of God our Father, and he says, that's mine. That's my own, and he takes us in. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. The Lord Jesus bore the sin of his people away. He has cast all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. He has hurled them behind his back where they will be seen no more. Beloved friends, we very calmly and coolly talk about this thing, but it is the greatest marvel of the universe. It is the miracle of the earth the mystery of heaven, the terror of hell. If we could fully recognize the guilt of sin, the punishment due for it, the substitution of Christ, it would give us an intense enthusiasm of gratitude, love, and praise. This is enough to make us shout and sing as long as we live, glory, glory to the Son of God. That's the purification. The first thing that we see, it's pointing to something that Jesus fulfills completely.
Then we see the people after they're purified, they go on this procession in verse 31. He gathers these two great choirs. Um, and the word for choir here literally means thanksgivings. He gathers two thanksgivings to go and do two things, to give thanks and to sing. And uh, thanksgiving is just such an incredibly um, powerful and wonderful thing. Packer says, it's safe to say that no religion anywhere has ever laid such stress on the need for thanksgiving, nor called its adherents so incessantly to give thanks than does the religion of the Bible. Why? Why does God tell us to give thanks? Well, it pleases God. That is the first thing. But it also reorientates us. Remember when sin entered? We got that distorted picture. It's like things became blurry. And thanksgiving just helps us to see a little bit more clearly. Sometimes, I call it the glad game. Um, but I, I play this, this game with myself. You know, if it's 6 a.m. in the morning and I'm standing in the kitchen packing school lunches without any inspiration or enthusiasm, <laughs> and it's cold and it's dark, why I am still packing school lunches for teenagers is not relevant to the story, so stop asking about it. <laughs> Held no bearing on the story. <laughs> but sometimes I stand there and I'm like, <sighs> and then I think, no, no, hang on a second. God, thank you that there are three children in those rooms who are a blessing to me. Thank you that they are healthy and well enough to get up this morning and go to school. Thank you that when I open this cupboard, there will be food in that cupboard for me to feed them and that what, not one day of their entire lives have I had to put them to bed hungry. Has anything changed? No, it's still 6 a.m. It's still dark. I'm still alone. But everything has changed. Everything inside of me has reorientated itself. So that's why Thanksgiving is, is commanded of us. It is a powerful, powerful weapon. It's a weapon against bitterness and hard-heartedness. It's a weapon against criticism and complaining. It's a weapon against competition and comparison. It is a powerful, powerful thing. And it also helps us to see God more clearly. In Psalm 69:30, the psalmist says, I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. To magnify something in this context doesn't mean to make it bigger, but it's just to see it for how big it actually is. You know, when you look at a star through a telescope, you're not making that star bigger. You're just seeing the star for how big it is. And when we give thanks to God, we're not making him bigger. We're just seeing clearly how big our God is. So thanksgiving, what a wonderful tool. And then they're told to sing. Maybe you've been in church long enough that singing is not strange to you. But we had one of Fallon's little friends come to church with us. And she said, why do you sing? And I was like, why do we sing? <laughs> no, we've always sung. She had context for a concert where somebody would stand and you would listen. But the fact that everybody stands together and sings, she didn't have context for it. I was like, well, it's so interesting because there are over 400 references to singing in the Bible and 50 direct commands to sing. That's quite a few, right? So why is singing so important? Well, Glad you asked. <laughs> the first thing is that God himself does it. And God tells us to do it. Scripture tells us he rejoices over us with singing. Our God is a, is a joyful, 
happy, celebrating God, and he rejoices over us with singing. The second is that it's an incredible teaching tool. All cultures, all languages, all times have used song and rhyme to teach their children. All of them. And they're actually now beginning to realize that even as adults, we have a hard time memorizing something if it doesn't have pattern. See, I told you the three Ps were going to be genius at some point in this. <laughs> and here is now my proof. Um, it, the rhythm, the rhyme, the meter is what helps us to learn something. Um, it also helps us remember. Um, sorry. You know, my folks sometimes sit here and they can't remember a lot of things right now. But still will sit sometimes and just be like, great as I faithfulness came on and they knew every word and they sung it from beginning to end. And I sit in memory care facilities and I watch these people who don't know what day it is, what year it is, not really sure who I am, but songs will come on and they'll sing it. And so much so that researchers are beginning to investigate this and they're realizing that song and music is stored differently in your brain. It's not stored like a, not in episodic memory, but in procedural memory. So it's like the things of routine and repetition, it's like muscle memory. It's stored in a completely different section of your brain. So singing helps us to remember. In fact, God tells Moses in Deuteronomy, these people are going to take off and forget me and wander, but teach them this song so that their children's children will remember me. God knew that to, to encapsulate who he is in song would be something that would be passed down and he would re be remembered. Singing also unites us. It unites us as a group. Isn't it amazing how, how groups sing together? They sing in, in places of celebration, in places of mourning. It's a, it's a unifying thing. So it's a unifying thing as a group, but it also unifies us because it allows our head and our hearts. I don't know which one was which there. It's like when you have to do this thing. It allows our head and our heart to be combined. We do devotion and doctrine together when we sing. And sometimes we have bought this thing that, oh, you can't be emotional. Well, I don't know that emotion is the problem. Emotionalism is the problem. But you cannot sit stoic and unmoved under such mercy and compassionate grace as our God is. So the, the, the procession involved to thanksgiving and singing, things that we can used very, very practically day to day in our lives. And then the third one is praise. And this is in verse 43. And it's literally five times in one verse. He says, rejoice, joy, some variation of that phrase. Five times in one verse. Um, and Spurgeon says this, it is a wonderful proof of our Savior's deep attachment to his people that having made their salvation sure, he is also anxious concerning their present state of mind. He wishes that his people should not merely be saved, but that they should rejoice in their salvation. How kind is God? Not only are we saved and secure and forever um, held, but he wants us to rejoice in that. He wants us to have a joy and a celebration in the here and now. 
This is the second time in the book of Nehemiah where Nehemiah stops the people and says, let's celebrate. The first was in chapter 8, where after the reading of the law, he says, we're going to celebrate. We're going to stop and we're going to celebrate. And now here up on the wall, it's intentional. He's gathered people. He's got trumpets and choirs. and He's been very deliberate in the celebrating. And at each of those points, things are still in progress. Things are not completely restored. The temple is not completely up and running as it should be. There are things still to be done. There are no bows tied, but he celebrates along the way. And that is something that we need to do. We need to celebrate along the way. It's not something that I am naturally good at. This is something that feels a little bit uncomfortable for me. Um, But this is where we sit and say, okay, the word of God shapes me. I don't shape it to fit my preferences. The word of God tells me that it's important to rejoice and to celebrate. So when we look at this, let's quickly, quickly look at joy and what it is and what it isn't. Okay? So joy is a response and a reaction of the soul. That's what it is. It's a soul thing to the knowledge and the contemplation of the Lord Jesus. That's what it is. Joy is a response to the Lord Jesus. Joy is something that can be built up. It's something that we can add to through prayer and repentance and the word of God and giving. All of those things increase our joy. Joy is not static or fixed. It's something that needs to be tended to. But joy is also not circumstantially based. It is not self-generated and it is not simplistic. You know, when when Nick kind of said, hey, we take this passage, I started reading it at the bedside of my mom who'd just fallen and broken her arm and just been a month of, of unfavorable circumstance. And I'm so glad that it was in unfavorable circumstance that I had to dig through this and say, no, joy is a thing. Because it's easy to be joyful when circumstances are, are easy. It's easy when things are smooth sailing and, and nothing is going against you. But to say, no, I believe that joy is a gift from God in the midst of circumstances that I would not choose, that is something that sits solidly. So why celebration? Well, it reflects God. Joy is God's own nature. That's who he is. He rejoices over us and he gives it to us as a gift to his children. Even this morning in prayer, he's a good father who gives good gifts and one of those gifts is joy to us. Joy is also an encapsulation of the gospel. It says, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. It's the gospel in a nutshell is joy. It's an act of kingdom advancement when we choose joy and when we choose to celebrate and rejoice. You know, as we're kind of um, embarking on the, the, who is Mercy Commons kind of thinking, we're trying to pull these things together. Well, what are the, what are the distinctives? What are the essences? And it's, it's quite a process because there's a lot of things to choose from. Do you know what the distinctives and the essences are that God speaks about his own kingdom? Righteousness, peace, and joy. That's how important joy is, that it's one of the three pillars of the kingdom of God. So when we choose celebration and joy and rejoicing, we are advancing the kingdom of God. It's also an act of obedience to God, and it's an act of nonconformity to the world. This one might feel a little bit prickly, <laughs> but here we go anyway. What other religion commands its followers to rejoice? 
And it's not just those of us who are wired that way. Not just those of us who are predisposed. The scripture tells us all the people, all the leaders, all the Levites, all the women, all the children, everyone was called to rejoice. Um, you know, I'm not a natural party person. I'm not. I'm more of the, how long do I have to stay before it's rude, not rude to leave kind of person. <laughs> what is the minimum amount that I can put in here? It's not my natural predisposition. It's not. But I have to shift in some of that because celebrating the big things and the small things is a representative of God. And it's, sometimes it's just obedience. Um, it's also counter our culture a little bit, right? The age in which we live is shouting, be authentic, trust your feelings. And it's complicated <laughs> because we do lament and we do mourn and we do grieve and there are seasons of weeping. But we have to do it like Jesus did, who was a man of joy and a man of sorrows. Jesus held both of those things. And we can do it differently because we mourn with hope. We grieve without despair. We lament and we acknowledge, but we know that emotions are not the master of us. Weeping may come for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy is our ultimate, final destination. That is where we are going. And then... It's an act of distinctiveness and declaration. All through this book, all through Exodus, we've, kept, we've just been reminded, are you distinctive? God wants you to be distinctive. He wants you to be different. Why? Because it makes the world around you begin to question. What? Hang on a minute. What's going on here? And this passage tells us that their joy was heard from a long way off. Joy is something that speaks incredibly loudly. Joy is something that the people around you will hear. It's something that makes you different. It makes you an enigma. People should be saying, I don't understand. I don't get you. I can't work this out. There should be something about us that's different because we're representing who our God is. Are we being distinctive in our joy, in our circumstances that we might not choose? What about in your singleness when you prefer not to be? Are you finding joy? What about in your marriage? when you'd prefer not to be. <laughs> Never happens. Are you finding joy? What about in your health situation? What about in your financial situation? What about in your job situation? What about those situations that you're in that you would choose not to be in? Are you being distinctive and are you representing God well in that? And in view of God's mercies, in, in view of the wonder of salvation, we of all people, we of all people have the most reason to rejoice. We have the most reason to celebrate. We have the most reason to give thanks and to stand in awe. We are a people who should be distinctive in that. I've intentionally tried to be quick. I think I did it. Okay. Um, because I want us to have spacious back end here where we can respond to our God. Um, and so as the guys just start to play, I just want to read a prayer of thanksgiving over us, and then we'll transition into some space in response. So maybe just close your eyes and just, just sit with the truth and allow thanksgiving to well in your heart. Thank you, Jesus, that you became a man in order to die for us, to rise for us, 
and reign for us. Thank you that because of your abundant mercy, you blot out our transgressions, that you wash us thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse us from all our sin. Thank you that you continue to wash us with the water of your word. Thank you that we stand accepted, rescued, and adopted. Thank you that you will return to take us to a place of happy rest that you have prepared for us. Thank you that the day will come when our faith will be made sight and we will be in your presence, restored to right and perfect relationship with you. Thank you that in the meantime you mediate mercy and help to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you make intercession for us continually. Let's all stand.